So in complete contrast to the last episode, which was, you know, basically an absence of character development and culture and all that fun stuff, uh, this is pretty much the inverse of that, which is funny because this is what Babylon 5 tends to do best, and it showcases that rather well, I think. We get to see a lot of pieces start to move into play in this episode. I actually have no spoiler section for today, uh, but most of that's because everything is fairly on, on the table, so to speak. For example... Lanier. I don't think I mind telling you that Lanier is going to be a recurring character. That's not really anything. Um, and Natoth, who will actually be a recurring, also uh, be a recurring character in the series. Um, I want to share kind of a theory. See, we've seen Veer, and he was young, he was ambitious, he was driven, and I had that whole theory about how him, he really felt like this was an important position. And Lanier is the is young and driven and and he's got that you know he's oh god this is he, he you feel the weight of the role upon him and he he he's clearly putting a lot of emphasis on how important it is to be in Babylon Five and under Delenn, and then we've got Natoth who is obviously taking her job very seriously and is very brisk very professional uh, very Narn actually and. Um, really presents herself as if she takes this job seriously. You're kind of noticing a trend here. All of these major aides and assistants clearly are people who are competent, capable, professional, and are young. That's actually one of the really interesting recurring themes. All of these assistants are young. So I find this doubly fascinating, given that all of the actual ambassadors, with the theoretical exception of Delenn, are old. And Delenn's different. We're just going to leave her aside. But look at Jakar, for example. And look at... Uh, Londo Malari. We have elder people who are well-established people who are long-time politicians within their world who were appointed to ambassador for this role. We learn in this episode that Jakar was actually a council member, which is a pretty high-ranking position, or at least it's implied to be, within the Narn regime. Um, Londo, of course, is implied to be of someone who is from a family of significant backing and prestige, at least back when that actually meant something with the Centauri. And well, to to keep this going, Delenn is a member of the elder leadership of the Grey Council of the of the Membari. And I mean, we could keep going with this because Sinclair is effectively the ambassador for the humans and is someone who is a war hero, well decorated, and was personally recommended by the Membari. So you kind of see how there's a lot of. Uh, political backing, but most of that is kind of the people who you'd think would be appointed. I have a theory about this, which is what I'm winding up to. The idea here is that you send the people who are the most visibly, obviously important. The people to be the ambassadors to Babylon 5 who other nations, other races would recognize. You know, they would recognize Londo. They would recognize Jakar. Obviously, Delenn is the exception to this, as I already mentioned, since she doesn't want anyone to know her true position and title, uh, other than Sinclair. Obviously, he's already figured that out. And Sinclair, of course, who's the great hero, the war hero, I mean, for God's sakes. So you send the really obvious person there, even though in most of the cases they may not actually be the best person for the job, but they want to put their best face on, and then they send someone who is very competent and driven and young and idealistic to be their assistants in all of the above cases, with the exception of the humans, because Sinclair doesn't actually get an assistant. Um... And those people are the ones who are therefore going to be driving the actual force. At least this is just a theory on my end of what these various disparate nations intended. Just a, th a, th a 
food for thought, it is also possible this could be something a lot simpler, a.k.a. this is a demonstration of how, despite our differences, we all think kind of the same way. We actually saw this back in the uh, uh, Born to the Purple episode just a few episodes ago. So again, Lanier. Um, I don't actually have much to say about Lanier in this episode. Uh, I like the fact that he literally would not bring himself to look her in the eyes until she basically ordered him to. And he's like, oh yes, I reverence, reverence and respect, reverence and respect. It seems like a very Minbari thing to me. And as a tiny peek into their culture, uh, we'll talk more about that in a minute. And of course, Natoth. And again, this is once again fleshing out the cultures of these people, uh, all three of them, the major cultures represented here. We see a lot of Narn politics, internal politics in the way they function, the way they work. The idea of the Assassin's Guild, uh, you know, if you deny your commission, your life is forfeit for whatever reason. Um, the idea of literal cutthroat politics, the fact that it can be, uh, it is very expensive, exceptionally expensive to order, order such an assassination, which says a lot about the kind of legalized assassinations the guild must actually do, you know. Um, the, uh, the fact that Narn are more than willing to play at subterfusions and, and, and lying and deception in addition to the fact that they're willing to literally grab their political opponents and, and strangle them to death if need be. Uh, all of that was uh, very nice and very well done. Um, and again, showcases that mentality, the whole Narn bully in the playground thing that I just keep mentioning over and over and over. It is also interesting to me that Jakar was a former counselor, as we learn in this. It says a lot for his political maneuvering that he's been doing this entire time. He mentions, hints at, in this episode, that he had to do a lot of maneuvering, a lot of uh, underhanded dealings in order to maintain his position while he was a counselor. And I find myself wondering how much of Jakar, the person, is an underhanded manipulative politician... And how much of him was just forced to do the role because that was the role he was in, in the society he was raised in. Food for thought. Uh, we do see a few other sides of Jakar in this episode. He is not portrayed as just straight up the villain. He's more like one shade away from the villain, uh, going from Z to Y as opposed to you know A to B, for example. Uh, it's a nice, it's a nice fleshing out of his character. Kind of, again, something Babylon Five is very good at having actual people, uh, characters rather than just caricatures. Uh, and, and we can see there's some depth to Jakar, and I like that. Also, I want to give huge props to the woman who played Natoth. She did a really good job. I unfortunately don't have much else to say about her other than the fact that she oozes competence, and I like that. And uh, someone like her is probably exactly what someone like Jakar needs. Uh, we'll see how that goes in the future. So let's talk about this uh, concept. They have this whole thing of this religious day, this religious week, excuse me, where all the different races can all celebrate their given religions on Babylon 5. And it does sound like a politician's maneuvering, doesn't it? Oh, yes, it'll be, it'll be good to showcase the, the peace and love and prosperity between people, uh, ignoring that most of the actual bloodiest wars in history have all been fought over religion. And the fact that shoving a bunch of people who practice different religions into the same small area as each other is a recipe for disaster. And yet, it is actually interesting that there is a surprising amount of respect and dignity about the entire affair. Part of that, I think personally, is genuine respect. These people, don't forget, have been living with each other for about a year. At least the people on the station, so the actual ambassadors and their aides and whatnot... They've gotten to the point where they're not just chomping at the bit to go after the others anymore. I mean, yes, there's some obvious animosity between Jakar and Londo, 
but I don't think it would boil over to the point where they would actually be, dare to be disrespectful at their particular occasion, right? Furthermore, the uh, I feel like the, a lot of this is the putting on the mask thing. You wouldn't want to be the one culture, the one race, the one nation who is disrespectful of, of another's religion, would you? You would be ostracizing yourself with that action. It would be political suicide. So it makes a lot of sense that there would be this enforced, uh, well, frankly, kind of a cold war. Uh, not, not literally, but that kind of a situation. The funny thing is that could work out long term. Now, I know what you're going to say, because you know, the Cold War sure as hell didn't work out long term, but my point is, if you maintain a peace long enough, even a fake peace, it is actually natural that real peace will actually ensue, because people get used to that peace. People, you know, The people who are not scheming, the people who are not plotting, get accustomed to the fact that everyone around them is being polite and respectful, so they should be polite and respectful too, because, you know, cultural, uh, cultural sifting, right? And it just makes a degree of sense, and I like that. Um... I like none of that, though. I actually, I actually drew a single tear on this episode because it just hit me right there, the final shot of the episode. We're all like, together, it's like, we need to show the, the dominant human religion. And there's just a line of people that goes on for God knows how many people. And he's just going down the list. And forgive me for not knowing the specific, but here's an atheist, and here's a Catholic, and here's a Protestant, and here's a Greek, and here's a Hindu, and here's... And just going down the list and line, and as everyone's you know shaking their hands or bowing or saluting or whatever is... Uh, respective to their given uh, culture, it's wonderfully human to have this one, because uh, remember, the whole point of this is the dominant religion of the people, and there is this one dominant religion of the Mimbari, and there's one dominant religion of the Centauri, and so forth. There is no one dominant religion of humans. There never has been. And I like the fact that there isn't in the future as well. And I like the fact that the dominant representation, the cultural representation, our adding to the pot of this week of religious culture is here is all of our people from all of our religions. They don't need to explain their beliefs. They don't need to espouse or try to prophesy or try to, uh, not prophesy, wrong word. Um, what's the word? Uh, I can't think of the word. Talk about the religion. There's a term for that. Um, you know, there's no need for them to actually try and sell anyone else on their religions. Rather, the entire point of the, of the display of that of that ceremony is to showcase how varied humanity is in their religious beliefs and how many different peoples there are and and this is the great part the fact that they're all standing there side by side you know shoulder to shoulder respectfully greeting and welcoming everyone else out and Sinclair going down the line giving each one equal due showcases that mutual respect that I hinted at earlier and I like that a lot I said I'd talk about religion at some point in uh, in Babylon 5, because I can't avoid it. Uh, ideally, I'd actually like to wait until later on. Uh, there's a specific episode I have in mind where I want to talk about religion. But I will say this, I really like the idea of mutual respect regardless of differences. You may believe A, and you may believe B, and I may believe C, but that doesn't mean we can't interact as if we're people. We can't find a mutual common ground of interaction with each other and react and, and interact with each other despite those differences. Again, one of the primary messages of Babylon 5, both in and out of character. Nice touch. Um, I have a couple other brief notes here. Uh, the Minbari religion, which also uh, very uh, parallels into a uh, 
a marriage ceremony actually makes a lot of sense and is, a, is very logical for the way the Mimbari work. First of all, we've already discussed their reincarnation beliefs that was kind of covered in Soul Hunter. But furthermore, this idea of, you know, I will always be with you, there will always be part of me, just it kind of is logical given the Mimbari ideal how this concept could go forward with, you know, no matter what happens, your, your friends, your family will always be a part of you and with you in a literal and tangible sense. Not in the sense that, you know, they're, they're sitting on your shoulder or whatever, but the fact that an essence of them, a part of them, is reincarnated back into the whole. So the Membari people are never alone. And that gives them that strength of unity, which I don't really feel like this is spoiling, is something we will see a lot in Membari culture in the future, the fact that the Membari are united. You with me? Um... Furthermore, the fact that that would double as a marriage ceremony makes perfect sense. The one person vowing to the other, I will be with you forever. We will never be apart henceforth. And again, tying into the reincarnation thing, because even after both of them do pass on, part of them will still be cycled back into the whole, and they will still be together forever. It's a nice touch. Well written. Um, the last thing I want to talk about... Oh, no, excuse me, I have one more note. I just want to say that I actually was like, yeah, when uh, Jakar and Natath out outwitted the assassin. It was it was brilliant and beautiful and a perfect example of comeuppance, uh, which is why I liked it so much. And I love that, that final parting thing. Oh, you will know pain, and then you will know fear, and then you will die. Good day, sir. <laughs> it's just brilliant. I love that. Um, so, the final note here. Catherine... Uh, I actually forgot to write down her last name, and I can't remember it right off the top of my head. Some people I, I've talked to about Babylon 5 think the Catherine relationship was, especially in this episode, uh, fake, which I find hilarious. Maybe this is my age speaking. I know, I know, I'm not that old. <laughs> I sure feel it some days. But maybe this is my age speaking, but having been through several different stages and cycles of love in my life, I feel like this is not puppy love or lust. I think it is probably one of the most human, down-to-earth relationships I've seen in fiction, right up there with the Keiko and O'Brien thing over on Deep Space Nine and TNG. And I mean this sincerely, and I mean this is a huge compliment. This is two people who obviously have a need, a yearning for each other, physically, mentally, and emotionally. It's not just lust, it's not just infatuation, and it's not just uh, co-requirement. Co uh, uh, dependency there we go there is an obvious genuine chemistry and connection between these two people and I feel like Sinclair uh, Michael O'Hare rather actually did a good job of that for his part especially given his issues so they've reached this conclusion and yet they have hurt each other and we get hints of it you know one of them left or one of them cheated or one of them couldn't deal with it anymore and blah 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 and that is normal that is very human not every relationship ends because one person was wrong, was in the wrong, right? Not every relationship ends because someone cheated. Not every relationship ends because, you know, it didn't work or the magic wore out. Sometimes relationships end because life gets in the way. And yet these two people have been given a rather unique chance, and I've seen this in real life myself, the fact that they keep bumping back into each other. And after all that they've been through, again, remember, they've been doing this since the Academy days, so this is probably a late teenage, early 20s kind of a relationship, the, at this point in time, now, with all they've been through, with the surviving of the war, with the end of the, that, with you know the ten years that have passed, managing his own station and her being a successful... Uh, I'm trying to think of the right term for that. Ex, uh, not excavator. Uh, scout? I th there's a better term for that. I can't think of it. Anyways, they're old enough now. 
that they can acknowledge and re recognize all of these flaws in themselves and say, you know what, why don't we just go and do this for real? Why don't we try to make this work long term? What I like to say, why don't we go for the commitment thing? Why don't we aim for that? And it is a very human, very, very old perspective, if I could put it into such terms, to look at someone who has hurt you so often and so many times and say, I still want to be with you, and not just because you're good in bed. That, that, that specific requirement takes a degree of experience to understand. Uh, I also think it is very uh, pragmatic of them to decide to just stay with each other because it's like this. Let, they go ahead and decide to try the commitment thing, right? There's only two ways that's going to turn out. It will work or it won't. If it works, nothing else needs to be said. If it doesn't work, they still are with someone they know and they trust and they like being around. Not everyone gets married because they have found their one true love. Some people get married because they have found someone they are comfortable with. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a bad thing, but not necessarily. It is not on the face of it a negative. And so even if these two people don't actually have that long-term, you know, true love, commitment, whatever you want to call it, they have still found someone they are comfortable with, that they know, that they like, you know, that have all the, the ticks on the list. Follow? I like that. It's really nice and very well done. Um, I think that's all of the notes I have. Oh, I'm sorry. Actually, I completely forgot one last note. Uh, this is totally out of place, but the Centauri uh, religion culture, I completely skipped over that, I apologize. The Centauri uh, culture, the big celebration of how many Centauri have survived in their terrible war and, and you know, blah, blah, blah. It is very Centauri. It's probably one of the most insightful things I've ever seen going into the Centauri mindset. They're in the middle of a bloodthirsty, brutal war against their the, the opposite, which they might have started because it is a war of dominance, not a war of survival or anything like that. And so they count how many of their own lived through that and celebrate it. And, and it's, it's a celebration of life, yes, but it's also a celebration of desperation combined with a degree of self-interest. If I can use a weird parallel, anybody out there seen Star Wars? The original, A New Hope, Episode 4. Of course you have. Don't be silly. The celebration scene at the end. I love that because especially if you've read into the EU, you know, the good EU, you learn that like immediately after finishing that celebration, they packed up and got the hell out of Dodge. But for that one moment, they needed that celebration. The rebellion had been so underground, uh, it had been ground under the heels of the Empire for so long and hadn't really actually had any significant victories against the Empire until that moment. They had been desperate and struggling and barely, and it wasn't until that victory at Yavin that they finally actually had something worthy of celebration. And they just, yeah! Okay, let's go! <laughs> you know? Same situation with the Centauri. I imagine this entire religious uh, effect started with them because they had nothing to celebrate, nothing worth celebrating. And it, it explains also why they throw themselves into it so much. It almost feels like an exercise in excess. If I could use a weird real-life parallel, certain aspects of South American culture, I'm not going to name names because I don't want to accidentally upset anyone, uh, have been deliberately been very vibrant, and buoyant, and excitable, and loud colors, and loud sounds, and loud presentation, because that the societies that developed those cultures had such a horrible, terrible things that have happened in their real, in their history. 
and so they they counteract that with that enthusiasm with that excess same kind of concept here and i like that again very human that's all i got for today i'm gonna go and rest because i've been sitting in this chair doing babylon 5 ruminations literally all day um i hope you guys have been enjoying these please feel free to let me know if you hate them i, I would like to know especially last week's which was um I think that's actually the shortest video I have ever done that wasn't just an announcement video. But anyways, I'll see you guys next week.